thank you so much for listening to, for me, these films are the juice. It means so much to me, the amount of people that have reached out and told me how much they're enjoying the podcast. Um, the feedback that they're giving to me is fantastic. And I just want to thank you all so much for taking the time to listen to what I have to say about these films. If you'd like to support me further um, and follow what I'm going to talk about in the future or um, support the podcast itself, you can do so in a variety of ways. I'm on Instagram at these films are the juice, Twitter at films are the juice, Facebook at these films are the juice. Also on Spotify, guess what it's called? For me, these films are the juice. And I also have a Patreon. These films are the juice. Via Patreon, you're able to pay a certain amount, which will help support the podcast and help me produce it in the future. You'll also be able to decide on films that I'm going to talk about in the future. And also, I'll be able to record some exclusive podcast recordings for such things as deeper dives into specific directors, top 10 lists, and anything else that anyone else would like to hear from me. I want to say thank you very much again to everybody that's listening to the podcast, um, that's reaching out to me on social media, and are generally just offering kind words, very good feedback, and supporting me in general. It's really greatly appreciated. So thank you very much. All right, ramblers, let's get rambling. My name is Steve, and thank you for listening. So it's Halloween. So obviously I wanted to do a horror or scary film this week for the podcast, but I was a little bit undecided on on what film to talk about. A couple of my personal favourites are Scream and Halloween, um, but those are being uh, covered by the cinephiles and the rewatchables this week, respectively. So I tried thinking of something else to do. Uh, there were three or four other options. Um, I couldn't decide. I was going mad trying to decide which film to talk about, but I guess we all go a little mad sometimes. In the end, I took a long shower, and then I came to a decision. Psycho. Let's do it. So I think the first time I watched uh, Psycho in full um, was when I was probably around about 16, 16 or 17. Um, and it was in my film studies class at A-level. Um, because it's one of these films that is uh, it's highly influ- influential to um, filmmakers. You know, there's um, there are just certain shots and certain scenes and sequences within the film that have been um, alluded to and used in various films uh, since it was uh, first released in 1960. Um and just from a technical point, the way certain scenes are, are cut together and and um, uh, and used within the film, um, you know, obviously specifically the, the very famous shower scene, but other bits and bobs as well within the film. Um, it's it's very very influential. So it's um it's one of these films that is um, you know, it's it's ripe for kind of yeah analysis by um by film studies classes. You know, it's much like kind of Citizen Kane or um um uh, kind of some Stanley Kubrick films as well uh The Godfather um it's one of these films that is just there's so much to talk about within it from one a story point of view but two also how the film is actually made um 
so as I say, yeah, I watched it probably when I was about 16 or 17 and um, absolutely loved it. I mean, it's, you know, now it's, how old is it? It's 61 years old now. Um, it's obviously very old. It's, you know, it's in black and white. It's, it's not that long. It's only about an hour and 40, hour and 50 minutes long. Um, so yeah, it's not that kind of slow. It moves quite, quite quickly. There's a couple of bits in it that, you know, um, maybe could be cut down a little bit. Um, but yeah, it moves quite fast. It's quite, you know, it's really easy to follow. Um, and yeah, I, I find it, I find it really enjoyable. I know kind of being black and white and being 61 years old, it can put some, it can put some people off from actually watching it, but, um, anyone who hasn't watched it, um, I'd highly recommend it. It's it's very good. I would highly recommend avoiding the um the nineteen ninety eight remake of it as well because, I mean that is I mean that's got some great act actors in it but it's um yeah it's awful um so uh but yeah no I'd highly recommend people going to watch um the original Psycho. So before I actually watched it for the very first time, um there were still some bits from it that I that I already knew you know they're just famous, um kind of popular culture um things that you reference, you know, specifically the, again, the, the shower scene, you know, anytime anyone goes, you know, I'm doing the pretending I've got a knife in my hand, um, a gesture there as well. Um, you know, that comes from Psycho. It's, you know, it's a, it's a very famous, uh, sound, very famous scene. Um, so yeah, I think even before I, just from as far back as I can remember, I think I, I knew about, I knew about that famous moment within the film. Psycho is actually an adaptation of a novel uh, that was released in 1959 um, by an author called Robert Block. And um, so, yeah, it's based on that on that novel. And the novel uh, centers around the character of Norman Bates, uh, who uh, Robert Block, the author, describes as uh, the notion that the man next door may be a monster, unsuspected, even in the gossip ridden microcosm of small town life which obviously you can see that in the in the film um when um Sam and um Marion's sister uh, Lila come into the the town uh to look along with Arbogast to look for Marion um and they talk about the Bates motel and thinking that something has happened at the at the hotel to um to Marion um you know the the local police chief says, you know, Norman's completely normal, um, uh, talks about, you know, what happened with his, with his mother, it being really tragic, um, so yeah, no one suspects Norman, Norman Bates at all of being this character that he, he turns out to be, and everyone finds out he is in the film. Um, the, the author, Robert Block, was, um, in very close, proximity to Wisconsin in 1957 when the um the serial killer uh infamous serial killer Ed Gein was um was arrested and things that uh, basically what the the murders that he committed and what he did with his victims and what he was hoping to do um anyone who doesn't know about Ed Gein you can you can certainly look that up I'm sure there's various podcasts and um articles written uh, written about him um but yeah very famous um serial killer who's who's been um used as inspiration for you know from characters in 
Friday the 13th, um, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Silence of the Lambs, um, but also Norman Bates as well. Now, so that happened in 1957. And as I say, Robert Block was actually um, located very close to Wisconsin when he was, and he was writing the book um, Psycho at the time. Now, he says that he only um, became aware of what kind of Egin actually did um after the book was finished and um the details of, of of that case after that time. Um but it is very it is very uncanny the kind of the connections between this real life character and the character that he made Norman Bates. Um he said he was aware of of the arrest and and what was involved towards the end of making the film. Um so there is uh, I haven't read the book, but apparently there is a um there was a line alluding to, to Ed Gein towards the end of the book. But um but yeah, apparently some the actual some of the actual details he didn't know till till much later. So a writer called um Joseph Stefano um wrote the screenplay for the film based on Robert Block's uh novel. Uh and then the the three main behind the scenes uh characters for the of the film who actually made it um, who were very important to, to the making of it and, and which made it so so iconic uh, are obviously Alfred Hitchcock, who produced and directed the film, um, the music composer Bernard Harriman, and also the creator of the credit sequence, and also the um, he also created the storyboards for the shower scene, uh, which is Saul Bass. By 1960, I mean Alfred Hitchcock is a um, is a legendary director. Now looking back, by 1960, he already has that legendary status as a filmmaker. He started making films in the UK in the 1920s, and when you look at, um, I mean, I've only actually seen a few Hitchcock films, but you look at his filmography, and I mean, he was so prolific. He wrote, you know, he made two or three films a year um, consecutively sometimes. So. Um, so by the time 1960 rolled around, he is well established as a as one of the most respected and one of the most influential um, filmmakers ever. Um, the year before he released North by Northwest, which was a um, massive commercial hit and uh, very kind of polished and again, an influential film in its own right as well. Um, that was made on a budget of four point three million dollars at the time. Um Psycho had a budget of $806,000. Um, it was kind of just seen as a, you know, Alfred Hitchcock slumming it, I suppose, making this, um, you know, this kind of potentially looked as a trashy horror film. Um, obviously, it was directed in, it was made in black and white. He used a lot of the uh, crew from the television work that he did. So it was, um, you know, it was very low budget, potentially not the expectations that films like North by Northwest had. Um, so yeah, it wasn't, I don't think at the time it was seen as this um, film that was going to kind of be so, so influential in, in it, in being a thriller and being a horror and, and would be talked about kind of years and years to come in lecture halls and uh, in colleges all over, all over the world. So as I mentioned, he made uh, North by Northwest the year before uh, on a budget of $4.3 million. It, I think it about doubled that in its box office. So it was seen as a big success, North by Northwest, the year before. 
Um, so again, the budget for Psycho was eight hundred six thousand, um, and the box office ended up being fifty million dollars. So absolutely huge, huge success, and it's gone on to be you know regarded as maybe the best horror film ever, one of the best films of all time. Um, so yeah, just just incredible how it, how it worked out that way. The film's also one of the one of the examples of just the perfect synergy between the images that are on screen and the score that is used. You know, there were some there were some of those iconic scores that, you know, you just you hear and you know exactly what what it's from. Um, Jaws, for example, Halloween. Um, you just hear that score and you you it just takes you straight into seeing that film and the images from the film. Um, Psycho also has that as well not not just in some of its famous scenes but the opening credits which i'll go into in a moment um but yeah the 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 way in which hitchcock bernard herman saul bass would kind of work together all their their pieces of work fit together was just it was just absolutely absolutely perfect i want to take a minute to talk about andy's man club It's a fantastic charity that holds group meetings every Monday evening where men who are struggling with their mental health can come along in a safe and private space where they know that it's okay to talk. The group meetings are for men aged 18 and above and they can speak freely about their mental health in a judgment-free, non-clinical environment. I've attended a couple of group meetings myself when I was struggling with my mental health and I found them very valuable indeed. The venue for the Plymouth group meetings is City College on Kings Road. And further information about Andy's Man Club in Plymouth specifically can be found on Facebook, Andy's Man Club Plymouth. For further information about Andy's Man Club in general, nationwide, you can email info at andysmanclub.co.uk or also visit the website andysmanclub.co.uk. If you feel you need help with your mental health, find out that it's okay to talk by visiting Andy's Man Club. Thank you. So the film opens with a bit of an, uh, an attack on the senses with the, um, with the opening credits. You've got this high-pitched uh, violin and strings um, that are again just you know proceed throughout the film as well um that combined with the the Saul Bass um uh title sequence where the basically it's just slicing through the screen um the music slicing through your ears and the the visual and, and both and the and the music are also slicing through the film as well you're seeing parts of the film behind the the title sequence as it's as it's coming in and out it's very loud it's very um it's very energetic it's it's one of those ones that yeah it's it's again it's as i mentioned earlier it's that perfect synergy between the the image and the and the sound and i I think it's just you know a massive sense of foreboding as well it's all you know it slices it's the, the you know the imagery is very you know slicey like a knife it's the the music is similar to what's used later on, uh, and it's just a sense of foreboding of, um, you know, what's going to come later on and what's going to happen to to Marion's character. 
as the camera is kind of just scanning through the um kind of the landscape and the, the cityscape sorry of of arizona um you get the you get the text on the screen telling you exactly where you are phoenix arizona uh it tells you the date friday december the 11th and it tells you the time 2 43 p.m now i thought that was kind of like um it's almost like a you know like a newspaper report or a police report you know it's it's very detailed it's it's taking the it's like it's you know it's it's preparing evidence you know it's telling you when where something happened when it happened um the day it happened um so yeah i think again that was just a slight bit of foreboding as to um what happens later in the film and and you know right at the end of the film when you know, there's new pa- newspapers reporters there. It's it's in a police station. Um, it's just kind of uh, signaling for for that, I think. Then the camera tracks into the um, window of a hotel room, um, quite voyeuristically. Uh, again, kind of a bit of precursor to what's going to happen when when Marion gets to the Bates Hotel. Um, so the camera sneaks sneaks in through the window, and there you see Janet Lee in her uh in her white bra in her um white slip would you call it um lying on the bed and sam standing next to her um uh with no with no top on um you would imagine uh post sex so the film was made in 1960 so this was a very um you know, it's quite seen as is quite risque. You know, seeing a, an actress just in a in her bra is very um is very new, it's a bit shocking, a bit controversial for the time. Um, as are a lot of things that happen in this film, but it's just saying it's stall out straight away, really early, and just telling you what what to expect. Expect expect the unexpected. Expect something that you haven't seen before, uh, especially for the for the people who are viewing it at the time it came out in in nineteen sixty. Um. There was a line I picked up um, that that Marion said, uh, Janet Lee's character Marion, um, when they're talking about being in a being in a hotel. She says, um, "Hotels aren't interested in you on your way in, but when time is up." So again, I just thought that was a just a you know the good precursor line as to as to what's going to happen later on in the in the film. So it's this it's this scene where um, the people the the person who's in control in the scene is is changing all the time um you have janet lee's character giving um sam kind of you know being you know saying to him oh i want to get married and kind of throwing herself into his arms and then a few moments later turning her back on him giving him the cold shoulder um you know him coming across a little bit emasculated uh, a little bit later as well so um it's just you know it's only a two or three minute scene, but it's the the changes in um, in power and control within the within the scene are quite um, happen quite quickly, uh, and then yeah, and then we're off to um, Marion's office. Oh, we have the obligatory um, Alfred Hitchcock cameo, cameo. You can see him through the window of um, uh, of Marion's office wearing a <laughs> very oversized white um, cowboy hat. Um, the obviously the film's black and white, but the the contrast between um black and white in clothing especially is you know it, it happens a lot throughout the film um but yeah so there's the there's the cameo there and then 
speaking of um of cowboy hats you have the chap who is uh there to buy a property for his daughter uh as a wedding gift the next day and you know just revels in you know kind of leaning on marion's desk showing off to her how much money he has asking her how much money it would take to buy her off being overly flirty overly familiar um trying to um trying to get her interest or trying to woo her by telling her how much money he's got um and her just being completely uninterested um at all so it's um it's a good scene for setup for later uh, as to something that, that happens later on and obviously it's the start of the the MacGuffin in the film which is the the $40,000 that um, Marion's given to take to a safety deposit box. So then we cut to Marion's uh, bedroom and she's getting ready to leave. She's packing a, a suitcase. Uh, what she'd said previously is that she had a headache and she's going to finish for the afternoon, but now she's she's getting ready to go somewhere. And we see the forty thousand pounds is there in uh, sorry the forty thousand dollars is there in her suitcase, um, which she hasn't taken to the safety deposit box. So we know that she's looking to steal it basically. And Janet Lee now is in her in her bra again, but this time it's a black one. Originally she was in her white um, her white bra, so she was you know white innocence um you know she's uh yeah she's kind of you know a uh good guy good girl for one of a better term uh at the start of the, at the very start of the film and then just a few minutes later she's made this decision to to steal this money so she's a bad guy or a bad girl she's the villain and she's therefore wearing her her black clothes so just those quick kind of changes between how hitchcock is maybe trying to present the, the character to you but then as she's driving you know she's she spots her um she spots her boss who gives her a second look and um obviously looks a bit finds it a bit peculiar that you know she said she was gonna finish and go home and go to bed because she had a bad headache but um now she's in her in her car and and driving out of the city um and then just with Obviously, some scenes interjected in between where the um, the highway patrol officer stops her, and you have a close up on his face, which again is a, a brilliant shot. And she um, she buys herself a a new car uh, to get rid of the old one, you know, kind of getting rid of the evidence, I suppose, uh, in some way. You just have these multiple shots just on Janet Lee's face where she's thinking. You can hear a. Um, you can hear the narration. You can hear what she's thinking. Her boss is saying what the um, the chap who whose forty thousand dollars it is that she's got the highway patrolman, the car salesman, um, her uh, her colleague that she works with. She's thinking about what they're saying, but while she's thinking that, you're just looking on her face. You're looking at her thinking. You're looking at her worried. You're looking at her having second thoughts. Worried what's going to happen. So you you're told at one point by Hitchcock that she's now the villain because she's stealing this money but at the same time you know there's nothing more um you know nothing shows more emotion nothing's so more um expressive than you know um you know the human face so it's um and especially on a on an actress such as Janet Lee someone who's such a good actress someone who's so um striking looking as well um where you can see everything that's going on 
yeah, it's it's telling you two different things at, at one time. So you're you're told that she's maybe doing something wrong, or that she is doing something wrong. Um, maybe she should be seen as a villain by how she's dressed, but also at the same time, you're empathising with her. You can see her struggle, her inner tur- turmoil as well. So just a very good kind of juxtaposition there, I think, um, the way that it's it's put across. Also, one thing I did like was um, when she was thinking of the of the chap talking about um, the money that Marion stolen, and he says something along the lines of, "You know, she was she was flirting with me, and um, you know, I can't believe she's taken this this money and what she's going to do." Um, I don't know if I noticed it the the first few times I'd seen the film, but she starts to smirk. She's she's glad that. He's saying these things. She's glad that he's, um, you know, he was saying earlier that you know money's no no money is no object to him, but now that he's this money's gone, it very much is an object to him, and he's um, he's worrying about it, and he's um, he's angry about it, and she's quite happy about that. You know, she's smirking about it, which again I think just shows a different side to her character and makes her even more rounded and. Makes you like her more, I think. So eventually, with all the driving, um, it takes about 12 hours, apparently, to drive from Arizona to California. Um, In the hammering down rain, late at night, Marion pulls up to the Bates Motel. And we meet Norman Bates for the very first time. Now, he is a... um, Seems very pleasant, seems very nice, uh, a little bit awkward, a little bit kind of um, maybe slightly childish, a uh, bit kind of gawky, you know, he's tall, a um, little bit, you know, nervous, a little bit shy. Um, but again, similar to what um, what the author of the, of the book um, said, you know, kind of boy next door type of, um, type of character he seems initially. Um, so he checks in, uh, checks Marion in, and then there's a little bit back and forth about, uh, him showing her to, to a room, um, using, you know, he's using a couple of lines that obviously he says to all, not the very many customers that, that come along to the hotel. Um, there's some stationery there with Bates Motel written on it in case you want to make your friends, uh, jealous. Um, and, uh, yeah, eventually he... Um, Marion winds up saying yes to having some having some food with him uh, that evening. So, so at this point, you can you you know there are certain um, recurring themes within the film that you you would have picked up on anyway. Um, but things that are kind of getting really put at the forefront a lot are um, so there's lots of shots of uh, mainly of Marion, but also now a couple of uh, Norman Bates as well in mirrors so um the opening scene uh at home when she's getting ready to go uh in the bathroom uh in the in the hotel there's a shot of uh norman bates standing with his tray of food that he's just made for for marion uh by the by the window where you can see his reflection as well so there's a lot of shots where you can see reflections of people in in mirrors um showing that kind of you know um 
the difference between the surface and what's going on underneath, the split personality um, traits that are going through the film as well. So, so those are the kind of things you start to pick up on. You also start to pick on the heavy um, bird theme in the um, in the film as well. Uh, Norman really enjoys uh, taxidermy, uh, mainly working with birds. Uh, there are lots of pictures of birds in the hotel room that he's checked Marion into, and Marion's surname is Crane as well. So, um, lots of things to do with birds. The way they talk in the parlor when they go in to have some food. Um, he's talking a lot about traps. The you know people being stuck in traps. Um, the birds being, you know, quite large, quite looming, casting shadows. Um, in the the moment when he starts to get angry, talking about after she says that you know his mother maybe could be institutionalized, and he his whole kind of voice changes and the way he looks, and he gets much more aggressive sounding. Um, his body language is much more aggressive as well. There's a with the shot of Norman Bates, there's a big bird next to him. Um, so it's all very you know it's all very looming. Um, in on the in on the characters and and just foreshadowing how much of a maybe um Marion doesn't quite realize how much trouble she's she's potentially in being having found this hotel um Norman also uses the line about his mother that you know she's as harmless as one of those stuffed birds which again is just a a foreshadowing as to Norman's mother isn't actually alive you know she's she's dead she's she's he's kind of he hasn't stuffed her but she's um you know he's brought her into her house her corpse into his house um and she's just kind of there harmless because she's she's not alive anymore some of the back and forth between um marion and norman in the in the parlor scene i think is really good um there's just a few kind of great lines in there where um Marion says to him that, you know, when he talks about taxidermy, she says, you know, uh, a man should have a hobby. Um, later on, he, when she asks about him having friends, he says a boy's best friend is his mother. And he says that a, um, a son is a poor, a poor substitute for a lover as well, when talking about his mother. So it's... It's this lack of identity with with Norman coming through again. She's, you know, Marion's describing him as a, you know, as a man. Man should have a hobby. He's describing himself as a, as a boy. A boy's best friend is his mother, and um, he's a he's a son, but he's not a lover, um, as well. So there's just you know, multiple ways in which he's being described or he's describing himself, which none of which are are obviously accurate um at that time and again there's a you know the famous line in there where he's talking about his mother and he says um she goes a little mad sometimes we all go a little mad sometimes um that's uh that's a great line it's a line that's used in um uh in scream um uh in 1996 as well so it's uh yeah it's a very iconic line as well so then as the as the conversation goes on, you almost feel that Norman has had a positive effect on on Marion. You know, they've talked about being trapped in certain situations. 
and she she ends the conversation by saying that she needs to go to bed because she needs to wake up early in the morning because she's going to go back to Arizona and that she got herself caught in a trap back there and she wants to try and get herself out. So she's changed her mind. She knows she's done something wrong. She knows she shouldn't have stolen the money. She's going to head back to Arizona, face the music and, um, yeah, and kind of maybe sort everything out um, for herself going forwards. So you feel maybe that Norman's had a positive effect on her at that point. Then at the end of the conversation, you have Norman's desire for Marion coming through. You know, he's not he's not begging her to stay with him, but he's, you know, he's he's asking her, you know, um, stay with me for a bit more company, uh, stay to talk for a bit. Um, he refers to himself as Norman Bates. She says, thank you, Norman. Um, you know, he, she lets her real name slip out to him. She signed in in a different name. Um signed into the hotel in a different name. So, yeah, you have that kind of, that desire that he has for her starting to come out, which then comes out um, in a very sinister way when he starts to starts to spy on her. He, he um, removes the picture from the wall. He's already cut a hole in the wall. Um, he's already specifically given her room one because as soon as she turns up, he's attracted to her and he can spy on her from his office. So, um, so yeah, that's when the, you know, he's, he's shown signs of his sinister personality coming out a little bit during their conversation when he gets a bit angry, but now you're starting to see that, yeah, this, um, there is much more to this, this character than, um, he's, he's obviously letting on just as well. The, um, the, the psycho remake that I mentioned earlier, um, that part of the scene where he um is being a peeping tom basically, yeah, yeah, um, it's a he does he does a lot. Vince Vaughn plays Norman Bates in that film, and yeah, he does a lot more than just kind of spy at her through the uh, when he's looking at her through the wall, and the sound the sound effects in that scene are absolutely it's horrible. Um, but yeah, just again another reason not to um, not to watch the uh, the remake there. Marion's in the um in the room and we see her writing down on a on a piece of paper about the the money that she's stolen, how much money she's taken out to pay for her uh pay for, pay for the replacement car. Um and then that's when we it's it's kind of focusing back on the money again as this MacGuffin in the in the film. I mentioned it being a MacGuffin earlier. Um so I never really knew where that term uh came from. And it it didn't actually uh, it wasn't actually um, created by um, Alfred Hitchcock. It had actually been in um, kind of movies and novels prior to that as well. I think Hitchcock referred to it as that and, and talked about it in interviews. Uh, he'd used it in quite a few of his films. So I think it became quite associated with him, the use of a MacGuffin, which is, if anyone doesn't know, it's a um, it's a plot device in a film that drives the plot forward but at the end of the day, isn't really anything to do with it. It's not the it's not the um, it's not the most important um, part of the film. So in this film, for example, she steals the money and then goes on the run, and that's what takes her to the Bates Motel. But as of that point, then it it ends because that's not what the film's about. Similarly, um, when I talked about Pulp Fiction, the the briefcase with whatever was in it 
um, drives the plot along in that that's what Samuel Jackson and uh, John Travolta go to get from uh, Brad and his associates. It's what um, helps Samuel Jackson turn the um, turn the situation around uh, when Tim Roth is uh, trying to rob the restaurant. So, but it's not what the the film's about. It just drives the plot forward a little bit. So yeah, that's when we start to see the the money a lot more. Um, but then, obviously, very soon it is removed from the film completely and the film takes a completely different turn and we've realised it's not about that at all, it's about something else. We now come to the very famous shower scene in the film. Um, now, I only just found out recently there's actually been a documentary made just about this scene in, in Psycho. Uh, it's called... Uh, 7852 which refers to the number of setups in in the scene which are, which is 78 a setup being the setup for a for a shot how things are and and just reading about it Alfred Hitchcock was unbelievably meticulous about this the 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 body double who played um uh Janet Lee in this in this scene um she she's given many interviews before and she said that you know, she was only signed on for about two two days maximum of work, and she ended up doing a whole week. Um, and that scene is like three minutes long. Um, but yeah, it took it took them well over a week to to get it completely right. Um, so uh, so yeah, sorry. So the the setups were um, seventy eight, and the cuts within that three minute are fifty two. So the cuts between um, in that three minutes, how many different shots there are of um of the murder and and beforehand and afterwards um are 52 so that's i mean that's just absolutely unheard of but it is one of the most um iconic scenes in in movie history it's a it's a um it's a scene that is uh again um you know studied uh in academic academia um it's talked about by um other filmmakers actors as just the the technicality of it, the the story behind the making of it, the meticulous of it, the effectiveness of it, um, it's just one of those one of those most important kind of scenes in in movie history in in any way whatsoever. Um, just a couple of other things, as well as well about it. Obviously, the the film is is wholly shot in black and white, so in order to get the uh, the blood effect in the um in the scene they actually used like chocolate syrup for it as well. So obviously it wasn't, it wasn't red cause you can see it, but to get the kind of the, um, the, the texture of blood, the kind of more gloopiness of it, how it would look in the water, they used, um, they used chocolate syrup for that, for that. And again, from what the body double said was that any shot in the scene where you see Janet Lee's face is Janet Lee almost everything else is is the body double themselves because uh, Janet Lee was you know um quite particular about not wanting to be naked in the on the set in the film um so she is wearing so in the scene Janet Lee is wearing a a bathing suit that starts um about 2 or 3 inches below her neck so you see the very very top of her chest and her face the rest is she's got a white bathing suit on um 
but for the rest of the scene um is the body double who's almost entirely naked basically i think she they had a like a paper um uh pouch that she wore um but other than that that was she was she was completely naked in that scene for seven days so um amazing work by by her to in that scene so a few notes on this scene or things that i took from it marion has decided to to take the money back uh, and face the music of, of whatever's going to happen to her when she does do that so there's no more there's no more good side she's not you know uh, as at the start of the film she's in her white clothes um represented as a, as a good person when she's getting ready to leave her house she's in her black clothes represented as a as a bad person she's not like this now she's um she's in the shower she's naked she's at her most pure it's a point where you know she's cleansing herself of what she's done of her wrongdoing she's having the shower to kind of kind of cleanse that all away from her and um when she starts when she starts having the shower she's got like a it's not like a look of ecstasy on her face but she's you know she's really happy she's happy to be showering it all off her to have made this decision that she's going to go back and um and return the money um so she's at a point where she's you know she's happy and she she's content in what she's the decision that she's made and then just just then that shot of i think you only see really see her back and then you see it through the the shower curtain the door slowly opening and then this figure just slowly kind of being you know um quite hazy but then just coming into um just realizing what it is and then just before the shower and then it's all completely silent but it's building it's building it's building as you're seeing it and then just as the shower curtain rips open then there that's twice i've done that now um it's just you know it's just incredible and then from there yeah just fast cuts um fast movements you're not too sure what's what's happening um and also as well it's one of these it's one of these scenes where you know it's it's obviously very violent what's happening this woman being murdered with a knife in a in a shower but from actually what you see you don't see anything really you see her screaming you see the knife going down you see the knife approaching her but you don't see any kind of penetration of the knife in her you don't see her being hacked to bits you see the blood coming off her but it's all it's in the music it's in the cutting and then it's in the audience's imagination you're imagining the knife going in and hacking her to bits which is which is doing in the film but you don't see that at all um so it's just you know it's just very 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 clever the way it kind of you know works on the um on the audience's psyche and and how um there's a lot of subliminal things going on and then yeah then finally it's done and then you've just got that bit it's on again it's on janet lee's face close up on janet lee's face what we'd seen so many times previously when she was in the car thinking and showing various different types of emotion whereas now she's she's almost dead she's got just blank look on her face pulls the shower curtain falls down collapses and and that's it she's dead um the scene where then the kind of the end of the scene where the water is going down the plug hole the camera zooms into the plug hole very close 
and then it cuts to Janet Lee's eye and then it zooms out from Janet Lee's eye just to then see her and the character Marion dead slumped over the bathroom slumped over the bath um it's just you know it's just so well thought out and so well put together this woman's life is just gone down the plug hole uh, within a couple of seconds um and then the camera just lingers on her you know you spent so much time with her she's the main she's the main character she's the you know the probably the best known actor in the film um and then she's she's out of it so it's that kind of moment of you're lingering on the character you're you're um you're mourning for that character what's happened to them you're trying to figure out what's just happened because it kind of came out of nowhere and then you're also starting to realize that the main character has been killed off uh 47 minutes into the film and you know there's about an hour left so you're thinking what the hell is going to happen here you're thinking it's all about this money that she's stolen um and maybe this man that she's the you know the lover of her life that she's going to go meet but no she's dead and the money's about to be out of the film so where the hell does it go from here and what's what's going to go on um so yeah it's just it's just so clever it's it's that moment where the the film completely slows down and from then that point where norman bates runs down from the from the house comes in and sees her it's a it's a 10 minute real-time sequence of him cleaning up the room um putting her in the car um putting her in putting the car in the swamp um putting the money in with her um so that's taken away from the from the film and it's just it's just such good such good filmmaking um it's just going to make you really it's that it's that hard transition where she's out the film and now you've come to terms with that and now you're realizing that and you're starting to adjust your mind as to what the rest of the film is going to be about it's just so clever it's just so well done and just watching it again you you can see why it's talked about so much that scene and also why there's been an entire documentary made just about that one scene as well so yeah, it's 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 so well done. I've yet to watch the um seventy eight fifty two documentary, but I'm uh, I'm definitely going to seek it out to to watch it. And um, from the sounds of what I've read about it, um, I'd highly recommend it to anyone else who's interested in this film or filmmaking in general because it gives a really good uh, breakdown of that of that famous scene. Um, now also from. Um, not just from a, a kind of technical standpoint and a filmmaking standpoint, um, that scene is also um, heavily regarded as um, influential towards the slasher films that, that followed it, um, such as kind of Friday the 13th and Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street. And there has been, um, there's definitely some discussion about the the violence, the sexual violence towards women that this film um, was maybe one of the, was pretty much the first one to um, to depict on film. Now, obviously, you know, not wanting to go into things that are happening in the, in the world right now and, and, um, uh, and yeah, stories that have been in the news recently and how, how they're being dealt with. Um, Cause obviously I'm just here to talk about, talk about films. It does, uh, it does certainly, it is certainly worthwhile, I think, questioning that or looking into that if, if anyone is interested at all, um, because it is, you know, it's it's just very, I suppose, very prophetic for how things are at the moment. Um, so I found this article 
uh, online, um, written by a chap called Tim Grayson uh, at MEL magazine, and it's called Psycho and the Sexual Violence It Unleashed at the Movies. So I think anyone who maybe wants to read a bit further into the into the scene in that way, um, definitely worth a, worth a read. So now that Marion and the um, the MacGuffin have been removed from the film, we go into the to the last hour, and it's very much a um, an investigative uh, film, as well as a um, as well as still being a, a thriller and a a horror film to to some extent as well. Um, and so Lila, uh, Marion's sister, goes to visit Sam. And explains that she's missing, um, and wants to wants to find her, and and obviously Sam has to explain himself that she's not with him. Uh, he hasn't seen her, and obviously they they're very concerned, and they um they want to try and find out what happened to her. And in comes uh, the private detective Arbogast, who I have to say I think is maybe um almost my favorite character in the film. He's so because. Janet Lee is amazing in the film. She's so um, just her her whole performance. It, it kind of you know it really stands out in the. It's such a great lead performance in the film for the first forty seven minutes, and she does everything so well. Um, so she's amazing. Um, Anthony Perkins obviously is is amazing as Norman Bates as well. It's his kind of like um, uh, everything. It's kind of the the character the the. The film that he was remembered for and revered for throughout his throughout his career, and he's he's great as well. Even though, um, you know, there's a few times in the in the film where it's, you know, his acting is, um, very much over the top and and ridiculous. But he's playing a a psycho, for want of a better word, uh, someone with kind of you know split personalities. So it, it's, you know, it's apt for his his character that he acts that way. But I think he's incredible in it as well. Some of the I'll cut some you know Sam is you know fine. Um, uh, Lila is good in what she does. Maybe doesn't kind of capture the um, the emotion and the and the um, just capture the audience in the way that Janet Lee does. But Arbogast, I mean, he's not in the film for for very long, uh, maybe fifteen minutes or something. But he's just so he's such a great presence in the film he's so kind of subtle he is uh he's got a great just a great kind of character actor's face um it was played Arbogast was played by an actor called Martin Balsam who um who was a, a member of the of the actor's studio I mentioned on a um a podcast previously that um I used to watch Inside the Actor Studio. I used to really enjoy it. And when when me and my wife went on uh, went on our honeymoon to to New York, I think the second day we were there was my was my birthday and my birthday kind of um, one of my birthday treats to do when we were in New York was to go to the original uh, Actor Studio where um, you know kind of Brando and Hoffman, Pacino, De Niro, Keitel. Um, all kind of studied and Martin Balsam was a was a member of that of that studio it's just a very famous place and um and yeah you can kind of just see that that level of acting skill that he has um and he's very recognizable as well he's he was in um 12 angry men he was in a couple of other films around that time 
Um, but he always kind of just seems like no matter how small or big the role, he always made a. He was always noticed, and he always um, he always kind of yeah, uh, kind of were attracted to his to his character, and um, yeah, I just think he's um, I think he was a really great actor and a really good really good character as well. When we first see our Arbogast, he has um, there's an extreme close up uh, on him. Um, similar to the extreme close-up that was on the highway patrol officer that questioned uh, Marion earlier in the film. And Arbogast has been uh, appointed by uh, Mr Cassidy, the, the man whose money was, was stolen by, by Marion. Um, so obviously he's very... He goes into this thing trying to find Marion as well and, and the money, but you know he's extremely distrusting of, of Marion, of Sam, of Lila... Um, so there's that extreme close-up of him and the highway patrolman was extremely distrusting, I felt, of, of Marion as well. He was questioning her a lot, um, question, you know, he was following her, he was watching her when she was getting a new a new car, he was very distrusting of her as well. So I just think that kind of extreme close-up on those two characters just kind of demonstrates that um, that feeling of distrust towards, towards Marion. Um, I've just put in my notes here that I just... You know, I love Arbogast. Um, <clears throat> he um, he. After his scene with um with Sam and and Lila, it goes into a little bit of a montage where he's knocking on various hotel doors and speaking to, um, managers to ask about Marion if she'd stayed there, um, and then you find him going to the the Bates Motel. And he has a conversation with um with Norman Bates and he just he just plays the he's suspicious almost straight away all he's doing is asking questions um and he just plays the scene so well there's so many levels to the way he's having a conversation with Norman Bates he's just trying to fish for information um he knows that something's up he's asking these questions to kind of goad him a little bit um especially when he starts talking about his um his mother and um it you know you can you can see a, a reaction coming from from norman bates um so he just kind of plays that scene so 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 well um and then after that he has probably one of the best one-sided phone call conversations in a in a film ever he he, he phones up and speaks to uh speaks to lila but you don't hear or see lila on the other end of the phone until you just got arbogast on one side of the phone um for probably a good like minute minute and a half and um yeah, it's just a great. I think it's just a really good piece of acting because he's just you're you're buying everything that um he's he's saying and that he's saying that Lila's saying to him the responses that she's giving. Um, so yeah, you just really believe that kind of that whole conversation and and what's going to happen next and how the how the film's going to go. Um, so yeah, I just thought that was um that was really good. So now um he goes back to the to the base motel. And he goes up to up to the house. So this is the first this is the first person who, other than Norman, you've seen go into the, the Bates house. So as he's coming up the stairs, he is very much in focus but he is very much in focus in the in the on the, on the screen, but everything else is very out of focus. It just kind of demonstrates that you know he's entering this imaginative made up strange world going into this house 
and he's coming up the, the stairs very very slowly and then you just start to see the bedroom door open really slowly and then it's that overhead shot of the the mother um rush rushing out of the room and slicing down Arbogast's face and then him falling down the stairs now the obviously watching that scene um in 2021 you know that scene is you know it's a bit ridiculous the way he's falling down down the stairs just kind of tripping up tripping up but the the look on you know Arbogast's face he's got that slash down the middle of his his face his arms are, are flailing um it's a bit of a ridiculous shot but um still very effective at the same time i think um Martin Balsam sells it very, very well. And um, again, it's a, it's one of these classic shots from, from the film and very violent at the end as well. You know, he, you know, the, again, the mother comes down, gets over the body. You, you don't see the knife going in, but you just see the knife ramming down, you know, what's going on. It's just, again, it's just very, very, um, very, very violent and very well done. With that scene, then you also, um, starting to realize how the how the setting of the of the Bates Motel and the house behind it are um you know they kind of reflect Norman's mind. So you've got the you've got the hotel itself the motel itself which is um it's like a front, you know, it's it's a, it's obviously the business, it's it's the front, it's the it's what Norman Bates projects to people if they come to stay or if they come to visit you know he's cleaning the clean the linen he keeps everything quite tidy it's a it's a bit of a facade um which is what you know kind of norman bates the trying to be the normal person is but then as you get closer to the um to the house you start to break that away and you see who norman but start to see who norman bates really is so obviously it starts with the scene in the parlor with um, with Marion it's obviously the you know the back of the, the back of the hotel it's behind the front um it's it's not what people usually see his his personality is starting to come out in that scene um kind of very threatening very unhinged um and then with the the Arbogast scene when he goes up to the house and then later in the with the the Lila scene when she goes to the house as well you're then starting to enter the kind of the depths of of um Norman Bates's character and his and his mind um so you've got the the different levels of the house you've got the the fruit cellar that you see later on you've got the um you've got the stairs you've got his room you've got the the mother's room and it's just showing these different parts of um of Norman Bates's life and Norman Bates's mind um and how it's how it's split up and how it's how he tries to keep it um how he tries to keep it hidden as well um so yeah, that's it's obviously just a um, a very good piece of filmmaking as well for to to try and demonstrate what's going on in someone's mind by the the setting that is in the is in the film as well. So now Sam and Lila, especially, um, are getting very worried about uh, Arbogast because he hasn't he hasn't arrived back um, after he said he would uh, after visiting the the Bates Motel. So they both go. So they both go to um to the base motel uh and just just have a little look, see if they can see Arbogast's car. Um they look up at the house, they see what they think is the mother in the in the window. Um I'm pretty sure they speak to yes, they do, they do speak to, to Norman Bates as well. He's um he's getting rid of, of Arbogast and his car in the 
in the same swamp that he um he got rid of Marion and, and her car as well and then he hears um Sam shouting for, for Arbogast and uh and then yeah they drive they drive away and they go to the the local sheriff who has some of the best eyebrows um ever seen in film I think and um I mentioned earlier how Arbogast was one of my favorite characters in the film because he was you know quite kind of subtle um bit of a kind of realistic you know kind of private dick character you'd imagine that um uh, especially in the 60s that's how um kind of maybe a private investigator would uh would carry on um and the sheriff the sheriff is um you know again he's very good but it's just he has these moments of just overacting and um the way he's you know describing to um to sam and and lila that you know norman bates's uh mother died 10 years before you know if uh if she's up in that window who's in the the grave in the cemetery you know it's just all very um uh, a lot of what he says is, is just a bit over the top and the way he says arbogast's name when he phones up um his uh, i think he phones up his his precinct and he said uh we're looking for this private detective arbogast it was just a very odd way of, of of saying it um so yeah so he's he's trying to say them that you know um that they probably you know marion's he's discovered that marion's gone off with the money and now arbogast is looking for her to to try and get the money and he and he realizes that and that's why he's not come back to to see them so obviously lila and, and sam don't buy this and they make a plan to go to the bates motel um to um as posing as a married couple to search the place and find out um what um what happened this is where hitchcock really starts to to kind of ratchet up the tension again in the film so you have lila approaching the the house and you have sam distracting norman back in the back in the hotel the the shot of Lila walking up to the house you're seeing her walking towards the camera and then you're turning and seeing the camera approach the approach the house and you can see you know the grass the, the grass is dead the there's an old wrecked car there's I think there's like a couple of old toys in the garden the house looks very very old and and very grand but very kind of decrepit as well so you're again it's it's the film reflecting this um the breakdown of of Norman Bates's mind um, as as Lila is slowly approaching it, and then this and then her searching through the the house is intercut with the conversation between Sam and and Norman Bates. So Lila finds um, Norman's bedroom, which is still very much, you know, a child's bedroom. There's there's a small bed, there's toys everywhere. Um, you're you're seeing the how he's still kind of you know this um this child in in many ways uh, as as one level then it goes up into um mrs bates room which <clears throat> looks like it's been you know it's being lived in you know there's a um the the bed looks like it's being slept well not only slept in that something's been in there that made a huge indentation in the bed um so possibly uh mrs bates is um I think Lila thinks Mrs. Bates obviously must be bedridden and, and she can't really move from there. Um, 
you get the the shot of of Lila being reflected through so she's looking in a mirror and then that mirror is reflecting another mirror behind her and it kind of startles her so there's like a there's like a triple reflection of um of Lila in this in this in the mirrors in the bedroom which again is just showing the the split personalities of of Norman Bates but this time to a more extreme um a more extreme amount you know it's 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 three reflections Lila is um is shocked and turns around and scared so it's just getting more and more closer to to finding out who who this um who this person really is and and what the personality is really like so Sam is now you know kind of goading goading Norman and and mentioning the you know the forty thousand dollars and him uh potentially leaving to and taking that money and and setting up a new new hotel somewhere and he Norman Bates comes out with this line which is this place happens to be my world which is which is true this is not only his world it's him the the hotel the the house this this whole place his his mother um that is that is him that's his this is his kind of fantasy world this is what he's created um so that's that's obviously very true um <clears throat> so then norman starts to realize that he's being set up he has a little tussle with sam and hits him with a with an ornament of some kind rushes up to the house lila sees that he is in the heart and she hides by the stairs going down to the going down to the fruit cellar and then we're building up to another one of these extremely famous scenes of of her going down into the fruit cellar, seeing the back of Mrs. Bates in a chair, saying Mrs. Bates, kind of hitting the chair and it's swinging around, and then obviously it's a it's a skeleton, but but dressed up is the is the corpse of of Mrs. Bates and Lila screams, hits the hits the light, we turn around and there's Norman Bates dressed up as his mum crazy wild look on his face knife in his hand um wanting to wanting obviously to to kill her and sam coming in and and tackling him down to the ground um so it's you know it's all very suspenseful it's all very um you know you have the scare of the the corpse you have and then you have the the shock of seeing norman Bates dressed like that um again it's just it's just so well done and one of these kind of like urban legends um uh, about the making of the film is uh, Hitchcock was kind of renowned throughout his films to kind of uh, at times um, kind of torture his actors a little bit um, and and kind of play play tricks on them and and make things difficult for them on set. Um, so the urban legend about this scene is that during the the making of the film, he would have different um, uh, corpses, different props for for the corpses for for, for Mrs. Bates. And he would hide them in the in the dressing room or around the set for the actress who played Lila Vera Miles to to find them. And he would he selected the the one to use based on how um, how loud she screamed and how scared she was. That's the that's the um, um, that's the urban legend anyway for for how that that corpse was was picked. So now we're at the um we're at the police station. Um Norman's been arrested. There's a lot of um media there, there's a lot of um security, there's a lot of police, um police detectives there. And we have this scene with the psychiatrist. Now, 
who am I to question Alfred Hitchcock, who's the most ama- one of the most amazing um, filmmakers ever. But this scene, I mean, first of all, the from the point where um, Norman Bates gets tackled down by Sam, and then it cuts to the fantastic final shot scene of the of the film uh, with Norman Bates. It's five minutes. Now, I really feel you could either remove that scene completely or just completely cut it down because I think at this point there's a little bit maybe of exposition needed to understand maybe what's gone on um, and, and you know, having the reaction of Lila finding out that, that Marion is dead. But it just goes on and the actor who plays the psychiatrist is um, Simon, Simon Oakland. And I mean... <laughs> It's just the way he plays it and the way he goes on. And it's just, I just think it's terrible. You know, is Norman Bates there? Yes. And no, the mother has taken over. Uh, The mother side of Norman did these things. Uh, It just, it's just very, very hammy. And I think it just, it's just completely unnecessary to be dragged out for that long. You know, um, a little bit of exposition. He killed his his mother and her partner. He had um he had a split personality. Believed who was his um his mother, uh, or his mother took over um, uh, Norman Bates, and um as his mother, he's committed these crimes. You know, I think you can do that in about a minute, minute and a half as a bridge from that final scene. Lila having the reaction, finding out her her sister's dead, and then go into the final scene and the final the final shot i think it's a brilliant way to end the to end the film just again it's on it's on anthony perkins it's just on anthony perkins face you have the voiceover of the mum speaking um he's you know his face is reacting to the way in which the the mother is talking um the look on his face is that kind of unhinged um feeling that he or she is now witted people and just the final line of you know um they're probably watching me right now i'm not even going to swat that fly and they'll say that sweet old woman wouldn't even kill a fly and then and then anthony bracken says that great shot where he's just looking down looks up straight into the camera with that evil look demonic look on his face and then you have the 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 shot of the corpse skeleton skull superimposed on top of his face as the as the car's being dragged out of the swamp. I think that's a fantastic ending to this film. It just puts a real bow on it. You know exactly what's happened. There's nothing, you know, um for anyone who wants like a definite ending. Everything's been tied up. Um I just think maybe it could have got been gotten to a little bit a little bit quicker. So that's it my analysis of, of psycho um i mean that, well, i mean what a film uh again just highly recommend it to anybody uh to watch it i know it does put some people off being so old being black and white but it's um it's definitely worth the watch i think even nowadays someone seeing it for the first time would still be um would still be kind of gripped by it um i do watch a couple of um uh youtube youtubers who do kind of reactions to films first time watching it and there's one called um uh the channel's called popcorn in bed um and 
I think she, I think they're also Cassie, American Girl, and she did uh, Psycho quite recently. And um, yeah, just again, you know, she was very very into it, reacted it, reacted to it as you know because she was um, scared of it and, and and shocked by it. So I think yeah, anyone watching it now for the first time would, would still have the same reaction to it, and it's it's just definitely worth a watch. There's just so much in there to to take in and to um, and to think about and to analyze from the point of view of, of back in the 60s and how influential it was then to the, the films that it influenced afterwards. And also, as I briefly mentioned, just how um, prophetic it is for nowadays and some of the, the horrible things that we read in the news um, nowadays as well. So most definitely worth, worth a watch, highly recommend it. Um, so, yep, so that, that's it for, for this podcast. Um, I'm going to have, there's going to be a slightly longer break between this one and, and the next one, um, as I'm, um, kind of away next weekend. So the next podcast will, uh, I'm looking to get out on Wednesday, the 10th of November. Um, and then another one, uh, out, hopefully I'll try and get another one out, uh, a week later as well. Now the two next films I'm going to do, I'm not too sure what order I'm going to do them in, are two of my uh, two of my personal favourite films uh, of all time, as, as obviously a lot of these films are, um, but two more kind of maybe more recent ones. Um, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, uh, which was 2010, uh, directed by Edgar Wright, and also uh, Sicario, which I think was out around about 2014, directed by uh, Denis Villeneuve. Um, the reason I'm going to do those two films are because I watched um, Dune this this week, uh, directed by uh, Denis Villeneuve, and it was great. It was it was I really really enjoyed it, and um, yeah, he's just a filmmaker that. I think it's you know potentially the most important, the best filmmaker around at, at this time, and um, and Sicario is I think is was an is an absolute masterpiece. So I'm um, really looking forward to talking about that one. And I'm hope by the time I do the um, Scott Pilgrim podcast, I would have watched Last Night in Soho, which I'm really looking forward to, to seeing um, Edgar Wright's new film and. Yeah, so I'd also like to talk about Scott Pilgrim versus the World as well because um, it's one of these. It's a cult film that I think really should have been a much, much bigger success at the at the box office, um, but has you know has got an amazing status being being a cult film nowadays. Um, so yeah, in so in reflection of those two new films that I've seen, I'm going to do a um, analysis of, of two older films from from the directors. Um, so yeah, so that's it really. Um, so once again, just thank you all so much for, for listening. Um, any comments, feedback that anyone has on the, on the podcast, um, or, or suggestions, uh, about improvements or films they'd like, uh, to hear me talk about really greatly received. Um, look forward to hearing from anybody with, with those and, uh, yeah, happy Halloween. So thank you very much. Keep safe. Keep on trucking. Take care.